This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The number of people who've been laid off from their jobs continues to soar. We were down at the State Labor Department the day it shut down its walk-in service this month because of the sheer volume of people that turned out to file for unemployment. Workers described an ugly scene that morning when the department made the decision to retreat and halt the face-to-face filing. One of the hundreds who came down that day was Keela, who found herself unemployed when Pearl Ridge closed. I was laid off because I work at a retail store at Pearl Ridge Mall and um, we're closed down for now temporarily. I don't know for how long so that's why I'm here to file for unemployment. And so the building looks shut down? It does. I just got here. I tried to file online all weekend and couldn't get through. The system was down. So I'm hoping someone will come to the door here and tell us what's going on. Another person, Josh, was laid off from his job at Macy's Ala Moana. Like Keela, it was the first time he has had to file a claim. My story is uh, I work in retail, and uh, I just I was one of the people that was affected by the um, store closures. I mean, I get it. Basically, as working in retail, it's the kind of thing where you get exposed to the public a lot. And I can understand basically being... Um, you know, closing the store to l- limit the spread of this thing, but at the same time, it just, I feel like I need something to do just to help take my mind off of things. And so, a little hard to do that when I'm sitting on my hands in my apartment. And so you tried to file online and with no success? Oh, yes, oh, so far. I've been able to get on their website sometimes, but it always seems to like crash after a while. And Tina Wary owns a small business in Honolulu, and she felt she had to do something to help her workers. I am coming down here to represent all of our employees that are trying to get benefits. I mean, we officially went dark effective today, and they are, the service industry, you know, it's paycheck to paycheck. So I'm trying to do whatever I can to help them uh, file the right paperwork. And they tried to file online? They tried to file online. Nobody can get on. Nobody can get, and I've been trying since this morning since I got up, so I spent a couple hours myself trying to get on, and I wasn't able to get on. Okay, so you're down here and the building is closed. <laughs> it is closed. Yes, so I see that they've got a, an appointment number up, so I'm gonna pass that along to the employees and have them just keep, keep calling that number so they can get an uh, appointment to come down for themselves. It's the only thing I can think to do. Now, the state reported the claims for just last week totaled 101,021. Current total claims are at 134,000. This morning, we talked to State Labor Director Scott Murakami about the crushing load of claims that will soon deplete the Unemployment Trust Fund and the technical problems that residents have experienced online. Basically, on Wednesday, the 18th of March, we started to see some degradation in the system. So the system started slowing down significantly, and it technically never really crashed. But for all intents and purposes, it wasn't receiving the number of filings that we normally could process. So on Thursday, for example, this was March 19th, we only received 1,117 filings. But you have to remember that that's still significant because in the last week of February, on that on on the Thursday, we received 76 claims. So you can see the volume that had increased significantly just by looking at looking at the per day numbers between that between March and February. And as those um, numbers came in, what happened was our mainframe system started receiving a lot of what we call calls or pings from different from all of the recipients trying to file at the same time. Now the mainframe was never designed to do that. The mainframe was designed to process filings and convert them into claims. They weren't meant to actually answer all of these calls, and that's what caused the system to slow down significantly. So how are we doing right now? Can we handle? So at this point, what we've done is we've put in a front-end server that allows us to better manage the files and manage the traffic going into the mainframe. And what that allows us to do is that the mainframe starts doing what it really should be doing, which is processing claims. And the, the front-end service that we have through the web server, for, excuse me, through the web form, allows us to manage the, claim, uh, the filings as they come in to us. Are there any snags in getting the forms or the claims processed? You were able to ramp up with staff, correct? 
we are able to ramp up with staff. We still need more people to help us. But as I was explaining earlier, the challenge is that we do have confidential records and there is an issue with making sure that we have proper people there. So there are a number of things that we did to address the staff. The first thing we did was an internal reallocation. In the ending of February, we had seven claims staff in the front office for UI. Through internal redistributions of staff throughout DLIR, I believe that number went up 45 now. So we have 45 staff either manning the phones, helping with password reset, helping with claims processing. And so that that has been an internal reallocation of staff. We also are starting up, um, we're trying to now move from receiving claims, although we're still receiving claims and we're still seeing high volumes of that, we need to move into reinforcing our capabilities in claims processing. So we're looking at actually moving our call center outside of DLIR and into the entrepreneur sandbox. From there, setting up a, converting our call center into a claims processing center. Okay, when will that happen? Our target is for the end of this week. Can you address the situation with our unemployment fund? Because at the rate we're going, we're going to run out. But but the federal government did pass the bailout bill on Friday last week. So how do you see that replenishing the fund? We haven't gotten specific guidance from the U.S. Department of Labor yet regarding how that money is actually going to come to us. So in other words, there are two situations we're looking at where sounds like, and the more probable one is where they'll just let us draw the funds down. In that situation, our trust fund would then be just carrying the cost of the normal unemployment benefit and will not have to cover the plus up or the additional $600 a a week. In that scenario, the maximum benefit right now is $648. So given the maximum benefit rate and the amount of funds that are in there, and assuming the 21-day pay period, the um, 21-day pay window, the fund will be exhausted on May 20th. Now, we also ran a scenario of what happens if the claims are paid out at the average weekly benefits that were being paid out prior to this happening. So in February, our average weekly benefits were $515. So if we use that as the burn rate, the fund will exhaust on June 5th. And this assumes, of course, that we're not going to see a whole lot of additional funds coming in and a number of other things that we've had to make assumptions on. But is it your understanding that somehow some of that money would be replenished? So what will happen is at the end of May, uh, well, at the dates that I shared with you, we would be able to qualify this year for an interest-free loan from the government. So we would be able to borrow additional funding from them. That's what would happen with the with the trust. The $600, the additional benefit, I believe, will be a drawdown. That's how we're seeing it. So that wouldn't affect the burn rate in the trust. Is there anything that you want to get out to the thousands of people that are out there who are trying to apply? You know, first off, I really do appreciate their patience. We're all in it together, and we're trying. We're doing everything we can to work the solution and not just worry about the, the problem because we need to get the money out. We understand that. We understand that people will start hurting very shortly. But, you know, this was a 10-year-old system that we had, and we had plans on modernizing. We had the support of the legislature as well as the administration to it, to make the improvements into the system. But unfortunately, you know, COVID-19 happened before those modernization plans came in. And so that's what led to the initial system degradation that we talked about. At this point, we're We've patched it together, and we're doing everything we can to work the solution to make sure that the claims get processed on time. So, you know, their continued patience helped. I would tell you, if you're an employer, please help your employees file online. The system is receiving claims now, and that's the biggest thing that you can do if you have to separate employment with with your employees. Please help them file online. I would tell you, before they even consider that, though, The most important thing is under the CARES Act, there is relief for small businesses with loans that are being floated through the Small Business Administration. And these loans, from what I understand, can be forgiven if they keep, if the businesses keep good records on um, whatever the requirements are that the CARES Act has put forward. But these will help the businesses to maintain employment, maintain payments and healthcare to their employees. And that would be the biggest help of all. That was State Labor Director Scott Murakami talking about the growing unemployment claims and the need to replenish the fund, which is expected to be depleted in May. For links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. 
We now turn our attention to Europe with the BBC as it continues to update us with the latest with COVID-19 on the other side of the world. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Tuesday the 31st of March. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway with the latest on the pandemic. Over 3,000 people have died from the virus in the US, more than in the 9-11 attacks. New York's governor is reorganising the state's entire health system. Spain suffers its deadliest day so far. And why are so many young people in Australia testing positive? More than 3,000 people have died of COVID-19 in America, more than in the 9-11 attacks. One tally said the US death toll had now exceeded China's. New York State accounts for about half of the American fatalities. It's struggling to cope with more than 75,000 infections. The governor, Andrew Cuomo, is reorganising the health system there to help it cope. He says the peak of the outbreak could be weeks away. If our apex is 14 to 21 days, that's our apex. You then have to come down the other side of the mountain once you hit the apex. So calibrate yourself and your expectations uh, so you're not disappointed every morning you get up. In Italy, the number of people who've died from the coronavirus has risen by more than 800, slightly more than yesterday. The number of new cases is up once again. Meanwhile, the UK has seen its worst daily figure yet for fatalities. The British government says thousands of new ventilators will be delivered to the health service next week. In Spain, more than 840 people have died in the past 24 hours, the highest so far. Before today, the authorities in Madrid had believed they were slowing the spread of the virus. Here's our correspondent, Guy Hedgeco. We did see a drop in the number of deaths. I think the fact that it's a new record high is of concern. And also the number of infections. We've seen a, a, a spike in that number between yesterday and today. 9,000 more, so over 85,000 people are now infected across Spain. That's higher than China's total number of infections. In India, millions of people are stranded after fleeing major cities when the government ordered a lockdown last week. The Supreme Court there has said the mass displacement is a crisis in itself. The Booker Prize-winning author Arundhati Roy says the government has forgotten about a huge section of the population. You know, I spoke to some of them who were walking and they actually said, you know, Modi, maybe he didn't know about us. And, and you get the feeling that perhaps they didn't. To announce something like this with no preparation and to, to call it a lockdown in order to enforce social distancing or physical distancing, actually, in India, it has the opposite effect. It's like social compression. Arundhati Roy. The number of deaths in Africa remains relatively low, but with more than 5,000 recorded cases across the continent, the Red Cross is worried that some health systems could collapse. In many places, clean water and soap, essential to prevent the spread of the virus, are in short supply or non-existent. Imogen Folks reports. The ICRC is especially worried about countries in conflict. In northern Mali, 93% of healthcare facilities have already been destroyed. In Burkina Faso, as people flee fighting, the population of the town of Djibo has doubled. Meanwhile, travel restrictions being introduced by some African states mean aid programmes are grinding to a halt. We know that elderly people are particularly vulnerable during this outbreak, but in Australia, a fifth of those infected are aged under 30. Reporter Virginia Eastman says young travellers have been spreading the virus at popular beaches in Sydney and Melbourne. The backpackers have been badly hit by this. There's apparently 140,000 of them in Australia who've chosen to stay, in spite of the fact that, certainly in my area at least, they were warned to leave before a full lockdown was put in place uh, as long ago as a week. And in Bondi, it's particularly become a problem and there's been a pop-up clinic set up there. Lockdowns mean many of us are keeping in touch with our family and friends by video technology. One of the most popular apps is House Party, but some users claim it has caused other applications on their phone or computer to be hacked. Now the app's owners are fighting back against the online rumours. Here's our technology reporter, Zoe Thomas. Epic Games is offering $1 million for proof that it was the victim of a commercial smear campaign. Beginning early Monday morning, Twitter users began posting screenshots they claimed showed applications like Spotify, PayPal and Netflix being hacked. 
These users blamed House Party for those attacks, claiming the breaches came after they downloaded the video chat app. House Party said there was no evidence its systems have been breached. And that's it from the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, what is the best immediate response to the economic damage done by the novel coronavirus? This is the time to write unconditional checks. And in this era of lockdowns and very close quarters, does familiarity really breed contempt? And if so, what can we do about it? The most important thing is to have humility. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This evening at 7, following Counterspin. Steve Levins is a state consumer protector, and he's warning of scammers who are already trolling to get their hands on the stimulus checks that the federal government plans on sending you. The stimulus checks are going to come anyway. People don't have to do anything. If the IRS has your account information, the amount that you're supposed to get is going to automatically appear in your account. And if they don't have your account information, they're going to send you a paper check. So anybody who gets any kind of um, email or, or any kind of communication from someone saying they can help facilitate that, it's, it's an, out, an out scam. Okay, they're just fishing for your info. They're just fishing for your info or they're trying to get money from you to convince you that somehow they can facilitate the process, which um, nothing is further from the truth. You're going to get this money if you're entitled to it. It's going to appear automatically in your your account, your banking account, or you're going to get a check. So you don't really have to do anything. Okay, so no third party involved. There's absolutely no third party involved. If any third party reaches out for any reason relating to these checks, it's a scam. Don't give them any information. Don't pay any attention to them. Hang up if they're calling you or if they send you an email, just ignore it. So who should they report this to? Well, they can report it to the Office of Consumer Protection. They can report it to the FBI. But what they should do is just ignore it. It, it, There are massive emails that are already being sent all across the country on this. The other thing that people really need to be concerned about and watch out for are debt relief scams. Now, obviously, this crisis is unprecedented. Thousands and thousands of people here in Hawaii are going to be under extreme financial distress. And there are people who are going to try to take advantage of that situation. There are people who are going to approach them. You know, if if you're having difficulty paying your mortgage, you say, well, give me some money and I can negotiate with your financial institution and deal with this mortgage issue. Well, first of all, that is a, a huge red flag. Under Hawaii and under federal law, no one is entitled to get an advance fee for assistance on what we call mortgage rescue assistance. Most of these people engaged in this, the vast majority are just scammers. They're just out to make a quick buck and then they're going to leave the homeowner with absolutely nothing except maybe losing another five or $10,000. So they should not engage anybody who solicits them to help with mortgage relief. What they should do is contact their financial institution directly when the time comes for that. And it's been widely reported that most of the banks in the country and credit unions are claim that they will try to work with the homeowner. But they should not go through a third party uh, because if they do that, um, it may very well be a fraud. The other thing is that, um, you know, people are going to be in financial distress regarding credit card payments and other debts. And the law is similarly like with a mortgage relief. If someone approaches you and claims they're going to help 
settle your debts. Don't pay them up front because the law says you don't, you're not supposed to. That's another big red flag. So you just have to really be on guard because these guys are going to be coming at you and they're going to come at you big time in the next few months because they understand that there are people who are under unbelievable amount of stress. When you're, un- when you're in unbelievable amount of stress, you're probably at your most vulnerable. So you really have to guard against these charlatans trying to rip you off. You know, I was in one of the aisles at Long's, and I overheard a conversation, and one of our seniors, you know, was already saying, oh, my gosh, you know, we're going to be in line for some money. I can't wait. Well, most people are going to be getting $1,200 per person to make under a certain amount of money. Your adjusted gross is under a certain amount, and the scammers know this, and they're going to use this as an opportunity to take that money from you. I mean, the money is designed to try to get people through this crisis. It's probably just a uh, a drop in the bucket, but it's going to be something. But to a lot of people, if you lose $1,200 or $2,400, it it is a significant amount of money. You have to be on guard. Just to give you an example about how crazy this is right now with scammers. Scammers are going door to door on the mainland, um, offering to take temperatures uh, of, of people. Uh, you know, and using that as an opportunity to try to get in their house and rip them off. Wow. We've heard of, yeah, we've heard of people going door to door claiming they're from the, the CDC. We've heard of situations in which someone gets uh, an, uh, some kind of email and they click on it and someone is threatening to give them the virus if they don't give them Bitcoin. It's just incredible the amount of scams that are out there which brings up another important point anybody who gets an email unsolicited email and there's an attachment don't click it if, if someone is uh, if the email purports to be from the center for disease control or um, you know the federal trade commission or the office of consumer protection don't click on it if there's an attachment because what they're probably trying to do is put some malware or virus on your computer, and that's only going to lead to a bad situation for you. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that uh, they had some bogus map, and when you clicked on that, you know, that gotcha. Right, and, and there, are, there are charlatans out there who are uh, emailing people, and it's on Twitter about, you know, these bogus health claims. I mean, that uh, preacher Jim Baker who was in trouble 30 years ago for ripping off his followers for some kind of vacation scam, is at it again where he's trying to claim that colloidal silver was going to cure the virus, the coronavirus, within 12 hours. And this is what people are dealing with, and what, this is the kind of stuff that people will be receiving. I mean, there's no miracle cure right now. Right, and the, the, federal regulators, the federal regulators have stepped in, and they're investigating all those cases. And so I, I know that you know law enforcement is saying, hey, if someone is out there selling a cure or if someone is price gouging because of face masks or whatever, you need to report them. Uh, that's true. Uh, but... As I always say, the first line of defense is yourself, because if you give a lot of these charlatans your money, by the time law enforcement catches up, uh, the money's gone and or they're bankrupt or it's going to be difficult to get the money back. You know, and be alert of all these uh, health scams. They're going to be fake charity scams coming up, trying to convince people that um, they're going to be soliciting money for a, a, a heartfelt charitable purpose and a lot of times the charitable purpose happens to be the the front pocket of the person running the charity right so whether it's uh, affiliated with the coronavirus or somebody on the snap program you know because an alert just came out about that as well so they're just coming at you every which way they're coming at you any way possible on via the telephone there's uh, reports now of robocalls you know letting people um, know about all these miracle cures or they can get masks for a great rate or it just runs the gamut okay so you have to be on guard you have to be on guard yep there's a lot of stress going on right now and bad people are trying to take advantage of good people 
That was Hawaii Consumer Protector Steve Levin's warning of financial fraud during this time of stress. If you don't know already, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Hawaii Attorney General, uh, is you know they're urging the public to report cases of fraud and price gouging. The Federal Trade Commission has also issued an alert, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture has warned of attempts to defraud SNAP recipients. For links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is Jose Fardo, President and General Manager of HPR, letting you know that we have postponed our spring fun drive. As communities here at home and beyond the shores continue to grapple with the impact of COVID-19, our reporting team is here for you, gathering the facts and striving to keep you well informed. Listener support is essential to HPR, so if you can, please make a contribution today at hawaiipublicradio.org. This morning, residents of Molokai will be offered drive-through COVID-19 testing. The group behind the effort is Premier Medical, the same group that's been holding events here on Oahu and the Big Island. We caught up with Dr. Scott uh, Moscovich at the Kaka'ako Waterfront Park Sunday, where more than 1,000 people were screened and 301 were tested for COVID-19. I characterize our worried well in a couple groups. The one I feel for the most are the people that I'm getting, 40, 50, 60-year-olds that say, I have my mom or father or both living in the home or 70, 80, 90, and they're just worried because everybody knows that they are very much at risk. So they come in asymptomatic thinking, please just assure me that I am not going to spread it to mom. And we just try to reassure them and tell them what to do and try to isolate. Then uh, the other worried well are people just getting off the plane from somewhere and they know they're coming from highly endemic areas and they are just really freaked out by the, uh, by the concept. But, you know, we've let them know that asymptomatic doesn't help, don't screen, and, and that they go to a high-risk group. If we're very aggressive, if you're flying off the plane from New York and you are having respiratory symptoms, even without fever, we're swabbing you because we're finding a lot of those are positive. You talked about a blood test that you folks are piloting. We are basically doing a pilot uh, and the, the results will help us to decide whether we're going to try to expand this. I'll probably hold off and um, wait till we get more information, but it's a 10-minute test that's very specific, but it's, it has to be used at a specific time in the course of the disease. It's an antibody test. I can tell the public that there are going to be options just coming up everywhere, and we want to make sure that everybody knows any of these trials, you're still getting the gold standard, which is that nasopharyngeal swab. And until that is available, none of this means anything until it's validated at a broad scale across the world. Okay. And then are you finding that the telemedicine efforts are helping? Boy, you, know? you, you just caught our team talking about that because we are one of the only ones that are doing this in person. Um, I think one of the things, and we're working on this with the lieutenant governor, is there's still so many broad feelings of what you screen for, who's qualified. We're seeing a lot of people sent in of just trying to kind of make the people feel more comfortable. Oh, get screened. And that's not where we are. So I think a lot of it is, is helping, but I think there is a significant portion that's not necessarily um, exactly what we need at this time. Okay. And then uh, as far as the, the results from today, when will you know what's happening? Well, I will give you a perfect example. All these testing today are falling under my name because we have a process, which I guess we could show you here. 
And as soon as we finish our interview, within the past 30 minutes, I got two positives that were sent to me and called into me. They're all called into me immediately upon availability. They'll text me over the names. I, as you see sitting on my lap is my medical record with a, a hotspot. And I'll be calling two positives from Kaka'ako. Right now, I believe that is our ninth and tenth positive from last week's screening at Kaka'ako. And I think yesterday, of all the positives, our group had about a third of all of them come to me. And then what about yesterday at uh, YPO? Uh, YPO went really, really well. Um, same thing, very appropriate people, not as many worried well. A lot of people, I'd say about two-thirds are just off the plane. And they had very valid uh, complaints of very valid symptomatology. And I'm, I got a sign inside of my head, and so of those 299 we screened yesterday, my median estimate is we're going to have 15 positives, and it could be higher than that. Will there be more of these, um, that you think? Well, I think we're already for sure knowing we want to do next week, and then I think we do an assessment because with, an, with the amount of testing we're starting to do, we do believe we're going to start finding our clusters, and then you're going to do more focused and more direct testing. I will tell the listeners I'm, I'm taking a team over to Molokai on Tuesday because they've been untested and uncovered. I'm taking a team down to the, the docks because those have been deemed essential workers and we can't find one or two people going in and infecting a whole group because that's where our food comes from and our supplies. So there's a lot of very well thought uh, people that are up at the general's level and lieutenant governor's level where there's a lot of strategy that's well in advanced thinking that we need. So public should feel safe. That was Scott Miskovich of Premier Medical talking to us at a drive through testing event in Kaka'ako this weekend. Support for The Conversation comes from Matson, specializing in Pacific Ocean shipping, celebrating 138 years serving businesses and communities across the Hawaiian Islands. Matson.com. We crave connections. It's human nature to want to know what's happening in your community, in the news, and with each other. And we need those connections now more than ever. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio helps keep you connected, engaged, and enriched. Wherever you are, whatever's happening in the world, stay connected on the HPR app or ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, now offering distance EMBA in travel industry management starting this fall. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Honolulu Civil Beat brings us our regular segment that we call the Reality Check. Today, a story about how the star advertiser is bracing for the contraction in the economy. Reporter Yu Yun Jung is on the line this morning. Hi there. Hi. Good morning. You know, uh, I have to say, uh, I was uh, very dismayed when I read in the paper that uh, Susan Scott's column was going to be on hiatus uh, because I'm a regular fan. Uh, but uh, good for you for following up on. Uh, on the impacts of this coronavirus. Yeah, well, it's an uncomfortable job to write about, you know, our colleagues' jobs being impacted by the pandemic and, you know, the the negative economic impacts of it. But that's what happened, you know. Um, businesses have shut down, and that's led to advertising being cut, and that's also led to some of our colleagues' um, hours being reduced and some of their jobs being furloughed. So what, is, what have you been able to find out as far as numbers? Okay, so uh, what, what I know thus far for sure is that most of the staff um, are working four-day weeks instead of five-day weeks, so 32 hours instead of 40 hours, and uh, at least eight of the staff members have been furloughed without pay. So they are still getting insurance coverage, as far as I know, but um, they, they're they not working. And have you been able to reach out and, and get in contact with some of these folks that have been furloughed? Um, on the down low, but uh, not officially, mm-hmm. not officially. Um, you know, and, you know, as you know, some of them have been posting on their social media. Yeah, so um, it, it is uh, distressing because, you know, uh, you think news people are essential and they're out there uh, uh, covering stories around this COVID uh, crisis. 
Absolutely. And that's what um, the Guild uh, Unit co-chair Susan Esoyan said. Um, the journalists are out there constantly posting updates on their website about what's going on uh, in Hawaii with the COVID-19 crisis. And, you know, they're working harder than ever. And, you know, the thing is that the value of news coverage is known by the public more than ever. You know, people are relying on news. You know, they're tuning into HPR, reading the Star Advertiser, reading Civil Beat, uh, watching uh, one of the television stations. So people realize the value of news more than ever, yet uh, these cuts have to be made. So somehow there's more demand for it, but the supply has to be cut. And so what does the parent company of the Star Advertiser say? So I haven't been able to get in touch with the parent company, but I did spoke to the president and publisher, uh, Dennis Francis. So, of course, he's saying that um, the situation is a moving target. And, you know, he's even saying that um, there may be more people who may need to be furloughed. So uh, the number eight uh, was the last that I was able to confirm, but he said that was also a moving target. But he also said that uh, he wants, you know, the situation to return back to normal as soon as possible. But that all depends on, you know, when this pandemic is going to run through its course and stop eventually, right? But, you know, that we don't know when that's going to happen, you know, when the stay-at-home orders are going to stop and when businesses can return to normal. Like, these are all things that we don't know. Right. Uh, but, yeah, uh, it is just uh, uh, a shame because, like I said, the journalists are out there covering the news and covering this crisis in our community, whether you live in, uh, you know, Makaha or Molokai. Absolutely. So that, but since you mentioned Molokai, um, I did speak to um, the editor of the Molokai Dispatch as well, and um, they're also seeing some impact. They have a really small team down there with uh, – just three people. They haven't had to, you know, make any cuts thus far, but they did uh, say that the editor said that they had to uh, part ways with some of the advertisers uh, because of the pandemic. And so they're seeing some impact over there as well. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Catherine. That was reporter Yuyun Jung with today's Reality Check. Read her story and more online at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. It's time now to check in with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HBR's Dave Lawrence with your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet, also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave, it's good to be here. This week's stargazers, the trio of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, will continue to be visible in the eastern sky before dawn, with Venus still visible in the western sky after sunset. The moon this week will be passing through its first quarter phase and will grow brighter as the week goes on. So make the most of those dark skies while you can. And we've been keeping track of some of the closures and ways that the astronomy world is being impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. I understand there is a NASA project that's been affected? Indeed there is. And as you said, the world continues to deal with the reality of a global pandemic. And astronomy and space science are not immune to what's going on. One casualty of this global catastrophe is NASA's next-generation moon rocket, the SLS, or Space Launch System. This rocket was intended to carry the vehicle that would have returned humankind to the moon sometime in 2024. However, operations have been completely suspended, and it looks increasingly likely that a return to the moon in 2024 simply won't happen. And as for the places that are building this thing, have any of them been hit with the virus? No, not yet. But that hasn't stopped NASA from implementing preventative measures, such as social distancing and suspension of operations at the Mississippi facility. And like we were hearing last week, some amount of the workforce can still probably work remotely, yeah? Yeah, indeed. Telework is now mandatory for all staff at NASA. And as often is the case, can be your lawnmower, could be a portable air conditioner unit, so many different things that are wonderful pieces of apparatus that you use, and then if you store them for a while and don't come back to them, they can kind of 
corrode or be worn out in some way that they won't work when you go to turn them on? Is that the potential for any of this stuff? It is. And in fact, engineers are currently putting key components in an orderly shutdown mode. And only personnel of protect life and critical infrastructure will be allowed on site if the need arose. When it comes to safety and the well-being of its staff, NASA is taking things very seriously indeed. As certainly most people are trying to do around the world right now. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week for Stargazer, which we keep at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Culinary Institute of the Pacific, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. On this last day of March, which is Women's History Month, we tip our hat to a trailblazer in our Hawaiine. Lauren Kahea Moriarty is the first Native Hawaiian to serve as a U.S. ambassador. She also served on the White House Pandemic Flu Task Force. We reached out to her to get her thoughts on this latest health crisis and the growing world tensions. You know, these are very complex issues and always things come up which you don't expect. But I think one of the things we've learned from experiences in the past is a lot about the interactions between the foreign countries and the United States. Almost nothing happens anywhere in the world that doesn't have an implication elsewhere. Um, We've also learned maybe the importance of coordinating between agencies. And I think one of the interesting things to me, based particularly on my experience when we were looking at avian flu and SARS, at that time, the initial task forces looking at the issues was composed pretty much only of officials who dealt with health issues. But what we learned in those crises was that it takes a much broader involvement to figure out what the response should be. On the avian flu issue, I was the U.S. Master to Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, an international organization at the time of avian flu in much of Asia. And we brought together for the first time the ministers of health, trade ministers, different economic ministers to sit together and talk about how the areas of responsibility they had uh, interacted and needed to be, those interactions needed to be considered as people tried to figure out how to respond to the crisis. I think when I look at what's happening today, one of the interesting things is that you do see that people are considering the interactions, say, between the economic impact of the crisis and the health concerns that need to be addressed. Because of your work in Asia, I was wondering if you were concerned at all about the tensions between the U.S. right now and China, you know, with this being called a Chinese virus. I am concerned about the U.S. and China just in general. China is an extraordinarily important country. Most of the viruses begin there because they have a dense population and you have pigs and people living in proximity. So most of the flu begins there. But there are so many other reasons that uh, having a good relationship between China and the United States is important. Two largest economies in the world, a lot of issues related to climate change, and energy. Look at just so many issues that are important that we need to be able to talk to each other about. So when there are tensions, that can be difficult. It's clear that the virus did begin in China, but once you have a problem, then one of the things we need to do is figure out how you talk to each other, learn from maybe what they learned as they dealt with the virus, and figure out how we can address issues where we can share and and make for a better solution. Right now, it's difficult because there are a lot of areas in which we have tension with China. It's not helpful that uh, the false story being circulated that the Chinese media and Chinese public and frankly by Chinese officials that the coronavirus began in the United States, we really need to be able to share information, have a factual basis for working on problems that affect us, and that's not a helpful start. So going forward, that is a role where where there are a lot of folks who can play a part in being able to foster those communications, including U.S. diplomats. One of the primary roles of U.S. diplomats is to foster communication between the United States and foreign countries. And what about the role of the UN? I think there was a story about how in the past there had been more cooperation behind getting all these countries to get along better. There's not so much of that now. I don't know. What do you think? Our current president, elected by the American people, um, has made an emphasis in his policies of having the United States act on its own in many cases. There are many times, though, that we've found that global cooperation can be helpful. So I guess that's what we're figuring out now. What is the balance between how we feel as an American people, we can best advance our own interests. 
I've seen throughout most of my adult life ways that we are able to stand up for ourselves, but also to communicate and work together uh, in many ways. One of those ways you know, has been in trade, where the United States has benefited greatly by being able to have access to foreign markets. Most of us look at our nice, cheap clothes we get at Walmart or Target or elsewhere, and, and we're happy that we were able to negotiate agreements that allowed for those imports to come into the United States. Look, it's another issue I worked on, uh, Open Skies Agreement. Originally, most airlines' prices were decided by government agreement, but Open Skies Agreements that we negotiated allowed those kinds of um, decisions to be made by private sector. So if you had a lot of demand in one area and a lot of competition, you saw that the number of flights available went up and the prices went down. There are a lot of things that with talking with each other, forming agreements, and finding areas of shared interest, um, we can advance the best interests of the American people, too. Now, you were honored recently at the Pacific uh, Asian Affairs Council. Looking back in your career, is there any one part of the world that you really enjoyed being immersed in? Well, I was just over 29 years a U.S. diplomat working for the State Department, and mostly in embassies in foreign countries. Uh, and then I was three years working with the Department of Defense as the dean at the Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies in Honolulu. Most of my career, I, I worked on Asia, in the Asia-Pacific region or on Asia-Pacific-related issues, including living uh, five years in Beijing and five years in Taipei. Uh, and much of my career, I worked on issues related to economics, um, working on things like trade agreements, uh, open skies agreements. Um, so that would be the areas I worked on most. And then, you know, your husband, Jim, is also with the State Department. He's worked as an ambassador. My husband was a U.S. diplomat for 36 years, and he's currently uh, the chairman of the board of the American Institute in Taiwan, which manages the unofficial relationship between the United States and Taiwan. And Jim and I were what was called a tandem couple. The State Department's interesting. We were the last bastion of male chauvinism, one of the last federal agents where women who married had to resign when they married. So above me, there were almost no senior women uh, who were married. And then in addition to that, kind of hard when you're moving all the time and you're in foreign countries to work, both husband and wife work together. But Jim and I were kind of in a new wave, and we were among the early couples where both the husband and wife were in the foreign service at U.S. embassies overseas. Um, in fact, we were probably one of the first 10 couples in U.S. history where both the husband and the wife simultaneously as U.S. ambassadors. I was U.S. ambassador to Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, an economic organization, international organization, and my husband during that time was U.S. ambassador to Nepal. Um, part of the time, I was ambassador in APEC, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. My husband was special assistant to the president for all of Asia. So when the president would travel, say, to the APEC meeting, Jim would be the one who was advising the president from the White House side as his special assistant. And I was the State Department person and the U.S. ambassador who was um, on the ground. So we actually convinced the White House at one point to let us share a hotel room. I mean, they could put the White House phones on his side of the bed, and they could put the State Department phones <laughs> on my side of the bed. <laughs> That's a great story. You know, I, I, I know in some of the previous speeches that you've given, uh, you know, one visual that I have in my mind is that you were at the Marines Ball and, you know, you were in your gown and then you uh, <laughs> took off your gown and put on your suit. I could probably tell you a lot of stories <laughs> about that. Um, that particular one was we were in uh, negotiations to conclude the bilateral U.S. China agreement for China's accession to the World Trade Organization. Very detailed negotiations, had to negotiate thousands of individual tariff lines to get China to reduce those tariffs, and we were very successful doing that. This was during some of the final days of the negotiation. He'd been holed up in the embassy after demonstrations following the bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, and the Marines were honoring him by giving him the flag that flew over the embassy during those days. But I was in negotiations. So I called my son and daughter and asked if one of them would please get in a taxi and bring me my ball gown, and I would see if I could just sneak out long enough to watch the presentation of the flag. So I did. We happened to luckily be in a recess. We had just given the Chinese our next position of demand, 
And I put on my ball gown. I went out. I watched the ceremony, and um, I was enjoying a few minutes of the ball itself when one of my staff members came back and said, just got a call. The Chinese are on their way back. So I did exactly what you said. I went back, (laughs) and I took off my ball gown and put on my suit and went back to the negotiating table. Uh, And we did conclude negotiations with the Chinese on an agreement that addressed pretty much all of the issues that were high priority for the United States with significant tariff reductions. And we got the Chinese to include in the agreement a number of areas of strong importance to the United States that had not been addressed under trading rules previously. It's amazing, though, just that story, I think, just underscores how you can switch gears. You know, you can pivot. Well, actually, there's another funny one, too. Oh, I forgot this one. Um, we were on leave in Massachusetts. My husband is from Massachusetts. I'm, of course, from Hawaii. Uh, at his niece's wedding, you know, we were all assembled, a beautiful lawn of their grandmother, gorgeous May day, and she's about to walk down the flower-strewn aisle. Then my cell phone rang. Oh, and it turned out that uh, there was going to be a meeting of African leaders trying to prevent civil war in Madagascar. And could I please get on a plane that night? Oh, my gosh. And fly to Senegal to represent the United States in the meeting. Wow. So I did. The, the <laughs> life of a high-powered couple, right? <laughs> oh, that, that that's really amazing. Do you have any advice for young people out there that might be considering a career in the State Department? Most of the time, I can't believe that anybody actually paid me to do a job that was so interesting and so much fun and I think made a real difference. So I loved it. I acknowledge it's not for everyone. You move a lot. It can be dangerous, but I absolutely loved it. And I think anybody who's interested should, in fact, check it out. At the same time, there are other ways, too. You mentioned the United Nations. Companies make a difference. NGOs make a difference. I think really the key for young people is to look broadly, find out what your passion is, and then go for it. That was former U.S. Ambassador Lauren Cahaya Moriarty talking about her career at the State Department spanning over three decades. She and her husband, James Moriarty, were among the first 10 couples in the U.S. to serve simultaneously as U.S. ambassadors. Well, we've run out of time. Tomorrow, we talk tourism. We would like to hear from you. Have a story to tell about coping in the time of COVID-19? Share your strategy or tell us about the acts of kindness you've seen. Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.